0: You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash Thank you for your practice, and enjoy the talk. Thank you very much for inviting me to come talk. It's been a little while since I've been here. It's very nice to be in San Antonio. I wanted to start today by telling a story of, um, yes, please let me know if I if I drop, so if I drop my voice and you can't hear, just raise your hand and I'll try and speak louder. So this is an ancient, it's an old Chinese folk tale. And um, it's kind of a story about realization, but we'll get there, it's a little bit roundabout. The story is, um, there was a, was a, a family and the father patriarch of the family's name was Chokan. and he had two daughters. He and his wife had two daughters. and the oldest one died. and so the only one left was the youngest whose name was um, Sejo. And because she was the only one left, she was she became the most loved child, most revered, and very, very, uh, very special to the family. As it turns out, the family had a, um, let see, let me just try to arrange my, it was an extended family, so there were a lot of different, um, family members living together, and, um, there was a distant nephew of Cho Kans who also lived with the family, and, around the same age as Seijo and his name was Ochu and they became really good friends and they played and they were kind of inseparable and one day Chokan, the father made a comment kind of an offhand comment to Seiju and uh, Ochu and basically uh, said something like oh you two are so cute and so inseparable someday you should be married and it was just an offhand comment. He didn't mean anything by it. But it lodged in both Seijo and Ochu's mind. And so they kind of thought of themselves as being betrothed. So, sadly, when Seijo um, came of age, Tokon had decided on another person, a boy from the village, to become her husband. And when he announced this um, to Seijo... Ochu was nearby and he heard it and he became completely heartbroken and decided at that at once, he decided, I'm going to leave. I can't take this. So he decided to sneak off into the night. And so that night, Ochu left, uh, packed a bag, got into a little rowboat and there was a river running by the village and he just got into the, bo- the boat and took off that night and as he was paddling away, at some point around midnight, he thought he saw somebody running along the bank. He thought, what is that, who is that? So he pulled over onto the bank and there was a rustling in the bushes and it was Seijo. And she had been chasing the boat all this way. So he pulled, up, he pulled to the side and got out and she jumped out of the bushes and they embraced and decided we need to go off together. So she ran away from home to be with uh, her good friend uh, Ochu. So they go off down the river and they end up pretty far away and they start a life together. They um, end up having two children, getting married, have two daughters, and they live a life together for a number of years in this distant village. And one day, Seijo says to Ochu, you know, I really miss home. I miss my family. I miss my father. I miss my mother. I miss the other uh, uh, kids that we grew up with. I kind of want to go back. And Ochu says, yes, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. Maybe if we go back and uh, ask for forgiveness, we will be uh, accepted. We can go back and, and be forgiven. And so they decide, well, let's, you know, surely maybe they'll be happy to see us. Maybe, you know, we've got these two beautiful daughters. Uh, Let's go back. Let's go back and, and ask for forgiveness. So they go. And when they get up, they make the journey back to their home village. They get back to the, they get to the little port and things have changed quite a bit. There's like, now there's a bustling port and, you know, as things go and uh, when they pull out of the boat, Ochu says to Seijo, Why don't you wait here with the children and I will go up and make my apologies to Chokan? And so he goes up by himself and he goes out to the to the their home, finds Chokon, and, and Chokon's surprised to see him. He's like, Oh wow, look, it's it's Ochu who left so long ago, five years ago. And so he greets him, and Ochu immediately falls to the ground and, and you know, puts his head down. He says, I am so sorry. Uh, please forgive me for, um, for running away with your daughter. And Jokhan looks at him, puzzled, and says, what, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about? And Ochu says, well, Seijo and I eloped together, and, and now we have children, and we've been gone for, for five years. And Chokan says, no, that's impossible. That's impossible. Seijo is lying in bed. She's been lying in bed since, actually, since the day you left. She's been in a stupor. She hasn't said a word. And Ochu says, no, no, no. Seijo's down, down by the river with the two children. And Chokan can't, he just does not believe it. So he says to one of his, uh, uh, a butler he says, could you go down with uh with Ochu and see what he's talking about? Because surely this is not happening. I can show you right now if is lying in bed. And so that the uh they all go down except Cho Chokan doesn't go down, but Ochu takes this the butler down and sure enough, Seijo is down there with these two beautiful girls. And so they get into a cart and, and they, they come up together and Chokhan is with Sejo, the, with with his who he thinks is Seijo, in the bedroom, and she's lying there in a catatonic state, just kind of glazed over, as if in a stupor. And as the cart starts coming in, pulling into the courtyard of the house, suddenly the Sejo in bed gets up, and the Sejo in the cart gets out of the cart, and they walk towards each other, and when they see each other, they both smile, and they keep walking, and when they meet, they become one. So the question in this koan, who's the real Seijo? Which one is the real Seijo? The one who left home five years ago? had a whole family, had a life, or the one who fell into a stupor and lay in bed for five years without speaking, never got married, just lay in bed. So this koan is, well, it's a folk tale that, that was turned into a koan in uh, China. And the koan, as you might imagine, it's it, it's an allu- uh, a a metaphor for when we ourselves are separated. So the name of the story is Seijo separated from her soul. Seijo and her soul were separated. So I wanted to bring this up as a way of talking about our practice, in particular talking about Dogen Zenji, the founder of our school in Japan. Uh, his understanding of what practice is, practice enlightenment. So before Dogen, when Dogen was a young, uh, uh, pretty young, in his 20s, um, he was a student of Tendai, and there's an understanding in Tendai that you are already completely perfect as you are and uh, completely enlightened. You have uh, everything inside you. Every single human being, every living being, has a Buddha nature that is inherently good and wise. And Dogen's question, when he was a young Tendai student, if this is true, if we're already inherently enlightened, we already inherently have awakening, what need is there for practice? Why should we bother with Chanting sutras, sitting zazen, following precepts, following the paramitas. If we're already enlightened, what need is there for any effort whatsoever? So this was Dogen's big question that led him to China. And when he led to, when he went to China, the first thing that happened, he was on a boat and took this perilous journey across the sea to China. And the first thing that happened, the boat was somehow, I think, quarantined. There was something... So the, the boat was in, in harbor, and he he couldn't get off the boat yet. But a, but a, a, a Chinese um, monk came aboard, and the boat coming from Japan was bringing some beautiful shiitake mushrooms. And this monk who came on board wanted to purchase some of the mushrooms. And I'll just read a little bit of that story. He says, I arrived in China in April 1223. So Dogen is 23 now. But being unable to disembark immediately, I stayed on board ship in the port of Ningbo, One day in May, while I was talking with the captain, an old monk about 60 years of age came directly to the ship to buy mushrooms from the Japanese merchants on board. I invited him for tea and asked him where he was from. He said he was the Tenzo at the monastery on Mount Aiwong, and added, I'm originally from Shishu, although I left there over 40 years ago. I am 61 this year and have practiced in several Zen monasteries in this country. So he tells him a little bit about his background and says, I visited the monastery on Mount Aiyuang, though I spent my time there totally confused as to what I was doing. (laughs) Then after the summer practice period last year, I was appointed the Tenzo. Tomorrow is May 5th, but I have nothing special to offer the monks. I wanted to prepare a noodle soup, but I did not, as I did not have any mushrooms to put in it, I came here to buy some. Dogen asks, "When did you leave Aiwan?" He replied, "After lunch." Dogen says, "Is it far from here?" "About 14 miles." "When will you go back to the temple?" "I'm planning to return as soon as I've bought the mushrooms." And Dogen says, "You can't imagine how fortunate I feel that we were able to meet unexpectedly like this. If it's possible, I wish you would stay a while longer and allow me to offer you something more." And the Tenzo says, I am sorry, but that is impossible just now. If I am not there tomorrow to prepare the meal, it will not be made well. But surely there must be others in a place as large as Aiwang who are capable of preparing the meals. They will not be that inconvenienced if you are not there, will they? And then the Tenzo says, I have been put in charge of this work in my old age. It is, so to speak, the practice of an old man, how can I entrust all that work to others? Moreover, when I left the temple, I did not ask for permission to stay out overnight. And then Dogen says, But why, when you are so old, do you do the hard work of a tenzo? Why do you not spend your time practicing zazen or working on koans of former teachers? Is there something special to be gained from working, particularly as a tenzo? And at that point, the tenzo bursts out laughing and says, my good friend from a foreign country, you do not yet understand what practice is all about. And then later on in the story, Dogen uh, meets another Tenzo who is out drawing mushrooms in the hot sun. And Dogen asks him the similar question. Why are you doing this when you're, you know, you, this, this man is uh, elderly and is in the sun. He has no hat on. He's just he's holding a staff and he's out in the sun drawing these mushrooms and Dogen says, why don't you get an assistant to do this for you? Why are you doing this? this is why, why are you doing something uh, sort of more important with your time? And that, that Tenzo also um, kind of gives Dogen a, 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 different, a different sense about what practice is. And says, this has been entrusted to me and this is my responsibility for me to give it to somebody else. Why would I do that? If no one, if, uh, who else is there besides me in this moment to do this particular function, to perform my job? So in Dogen's journey, uh, the question of why practice, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Genjo Koan. The last few, uh, the last story in the Genjo Koan is about Master Bao Cha, who is um, sitting there fanning himself. And a monk approaches him and says, Master, the nature of wind is permanent and there's no place it doesn't reach. Why are you fanning yourself if the nature of wind is everywhere? Why are you exerting this special effort? And the uh, master, the great master Baucha says, Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. And monk says, well, what is the meaning of it reaching everywhere? And Master, ba- Master Baucha just kept saying, himself, What is the nature of wind as permanent? What is the nature of uh, our original enlightenment? So these questions that Dogen struggled with in his early years, What is practice and what is realization? Looking at practice and realization, often we look at them as two things. Yes, we practice so that we can realize something. It's all very linear. We we exert a certain kind of effort in order to gain something, in order to get somewhere. But over and over again we hear there is no gaining idea to be had. But what is this effort that we need? So this is this Zen question that comes up over and over again in our lives. What is the effort that's needed? If it's, uh, if it's right there, always right there. Enlightenment is at our, um, it's an activity we are always able to manifest. So what special effort is needed? As you know, in Zazen, um, we try not to do anything in particular. We be. In Zazen, we come to our cushion. Oftentimes, we, our minds, just out of habit, are thinking, planning, maybe ruminating about the past, trying to figure out the future. It's so hard to come back to this present moment. Not hard to do it, but to maintain it, to sustain it, to have that constant repeating, the coming back to now, and then now, and then now. The effort that's involved is not the particular kind of effort that we normally think of when we think of efforting, the doing mind, the busy mind, the one that's trying to get somewhere. So effort, without having a gaining idea, What is that? How does that even, um, to our minds often, it's like, what does that even mean? To make effort. Normally, making effort means you have a goal in mind. And yet, having a goal in mind can be what gets right in your way when you're practicing. Whereas practice enlightenment, two sides of the same coin, thinking of that as, you know, oftentimes we think of our practice as this linear thing. We come into the zendo. We have special places like this place. I mean, we can practice anywhere, right? We can. We so we're we're told practice can happen anywhere, in any moment, and yet we construct places where um, that we make sacred. We make uh, we we fill a space with the intention. How many of you have the experience when you walk into the Zen center? something inside kind of releases or shifts. It's kind of like your whole body reorganizes to be in a space of awakeness. Just by having this space that we've all, um, whatever space we have, that we've imbued with our intention, our intention to wake up. So having great effort to not do anything is kind of a a contradiction and yet this linear practice at every moment that we practice, whether it's in the Zen center, in a, in a a seated practice, or just before the talk doing a little bit of Soji, it's the same thing. Now try and bring Soji Zazen mind to your general work day. And it's a little trickier, right? It's a little harder when you're with people who may not be practicing and you've got deadlines and you've got expectations. It's a little trickier to uh, truly believe in your awakened nature and the awakened nature of all beings. A little harder there (laughs) than it is when you come to a place like a Zen center, which is why we call this a practice space practice temple because we uh, even though it's uh, our inherent awakeness is always present just like the moon is always present in the sky whether it's covered by clouds or not the same thing with our lives we are always every moment of the way this is our linear time At any moment in our lives we can stop right there and be awake. Now of course it's much harder when the myriad things all come up at once. Yes. I'm sorry, I don't have a clock. Oh there, no. I have no idea what time it is. Ten twenty. Thank you. So I don't have very much time. I was going to talk a little bit about some of the background of our work practice. But I will skip that. So why did I bring this up, this idea of our practice realization in the context of this story of a soul being separated from itself? In going back to the story... When Seijo in bed gets up and Seijo in the cart gets out of the cart and they walk together and meet each other, it's kind of, they smile at each other, which when I first heard this story, that was kind of chilling, like these two, these two separate entities smiling at each other, this kind of like, what was that smile? And sometimes it's, it's like, is it a smile of recognition? Is it a smile of having been separated and then coming back to union? Is it a smile of seeing one's nature? I think of the uh, the story, the first transmission story of Shakyamuni Buddha holding up the flower on Vulture Peak at this great assembly, and Mahakashyapa smiles, and the Buddha smiles, and that's the transmission story between the two, teacher and disciple. Suzuki Roshi says, in our everyday life, we are usually trying to do something, trying to change something into something else, or trying to attain something, and then he says something interesting. He says, just this trying is already in itself an expression of our true nature. The meaning lies in the effort itself. We should find out the meaning of our effort before we attain something. So Dogen said, we should attain enlightenment before we attain enlightenment. Attain enlightenment before we attain enlightenment. It is not after attaining enlightenment that we find its true meaning. The trying to do something is itself enlightenment. And then in a fascicle by Dogen called Only a Buddha and a Buddha, Yūgutsu Yobutsu, Dogen says, When you have thoroughly awakened in spite of yourself, (laughs) I love that line, when you've thoroughly awakened in spite of yourself, it will be nothing like what you thought it would be before you had awakened. In whatever way you may have imagined it would be, what you awaken to will not at all resemble what you had imagined, for actual awakening bears no resemblance to what you may imagine it to be. Should you reflect on this, you will see that prior to your awakening, whatever you thought it would be like is neither here nor there when actually experiencing an awakening. This does not mean, however, that those views are fundamentally wrong, and have played no part in your awakening. <clears throat> he says, this so-called look is that of being untainted. Being untainted does not mean being deliberately devoid of any purpose or refusing to make choices. So oftentimes we think with, when we hear of practice and realization as being this, being not separate, from one another. When Dogen first had this question of what does it mean that we're already awakened? How can we already be awakened before we have awakened? Practice realization not being separate. Maybe this means that we don't, what does it mean to practice in this sense? So Dogen says, being untainted does not mean being deliberately devoid of any purpose or refusing to make choices, nor is it being compulsively preoccupied With trying to be aimless or glossing over everything, how could there possibly be an untainted state in which someone is devoid of any purpose and refuses to make choices? For instance, upon meeting someone, the untainted person does not bring to mind judgmental thoughts concerning just how that other person looks. And with both flowers and the moon, such a one does not think of adding anything to their present brightness and color." Such a one does not attempt to evade the feelings that a spring day is spring, just as it is, or that the beauty or dreariness of an autumn day is autumn, just as it is. And he or she will be aware that this is not to be taken as separate from himself, or even as being part and parcel of himself. So in the story of Seijo and her soul being separated, do we think, when we ask the question... Which is the real Seijo? Already, what have we fallen into? Thinking that there's a real Seijo. Surely one of them had to be real and one of them was fake. When Seijo herself is asked, which one is the real Seijo? She says, she says, I was not, I didn't even know. I felt like I was in a dream. I myself am not sure which one was the real me, the one with you sick in bed or the one with Ochu as his wife. So interestingly, this feeling, this story of separation and reunion, all the way across, going all the way from from separation to union, what is the difference between separation and union? Enlightenment doesn't necessarily... Look anything like you imagine it. Even separation is part of our path. The verse from that koan I will read and I will end with this The moon above the clouds is ever the same. Valleys and mountains are separate from each other. All are blessed, all are blessed. Are they one or are they two? And as Suzuki Yoshi says, not one, not two. Our minds constrict ourselves, thinking, thinking. When we sit in Zazen and we're pulled into thoughts, we're inevitably drawn out of the present, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, not being fully awake to this moment. We're always, always have the ability to stop, feel inside, be with what's happening in this body and mind, in this moment, always right there, available to us, sometimes it just takes a slight shift, it doesn't take anything extraordinary, it's actually very, very ordinary, to just pause and breathe and connect to this moment. And then the next moment, and then the next moment, separation or non-separation, separation separation or union, neither of them keep us from connecting to this moment. So I think that's all I wanted to say in the time I have, and I think, are we, um, is it time for questions Mm -hmm. at this point? Thank you very much.